One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said I cannot believe how young you look and I thought thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com/pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com/pantsuit for 25% off. From Tammy Duckworth to Emma Gonzalez, the face of women as political figures is changing. We're discussing the evolving depictions of women as leaders with Professor Emily Goodman. I'm Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. So we are here with Professor Emily Goodman. We are so excited to talk to you. Here's how we knew this was going to be a good conversation. We're emailing with Emily, and she says, well, should we talk about Leslie Nope?" And we're like, you're our people. You're we're okay. good. It's going to be good. It's going to be great. So we wanted to talk with you, Emily, about how the face of what you think of as a woman in leadership is changing and changing dramatically in all kinds of directions right now. So I would love to just kind of throw that open to you for your initial thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of ways in which it is changing. There's a lot of things that have stayed the same. And I, so I'm an art historian and I like to think big picture, but when you think about the face of women in politics, I mean, you can look at different ways in which women have used certain things about femininity in order to activate Um, and cause social change, right? So you can think about like suffragists wearing white and dressing in a certain way in order to to create a certain image of themselves. A colleague of mine, my friend Stacy, in her dissertation, like would write about suffrage cookbooks. And what she would talk about was that suffrage cookbooks used the language of femininity and domesticity to advocate for women to have the right to vote. And you can see that very much so in their visual representations too, right? Um, She always called it putting spinach in the brownies, which I really like as that analogy. (laughs) I love that. Um, 
but it's this like idea that women deserve the right to vote because of their femininity. And so like that's a really early 20th century understanding. But then in the 1970s, which is the period I studied my dissertation, you start to see things shifting and changing. You see women wearing pants and like that was a huge scandal and a huge thing. And now we're in a point where pantsuits are the symbol of women in politics, as we're evidenced from the name of their podcast even. Uh, so I think, you know, the long history of women in politics is changing for sure. Um, and there are lots of the debates that have always happened that still are happening, like respectability and visibility. Um, you know, do you, what's the difference between an activist versus a leader and how they depict themselves? And sometimes you can see the same woman in two different roles. Like you've already mentioned Tammy Duckworth, right? Tammy Duckworth on the floor of the Senate looks one way. Tammy Duckworth at the Women's March wore a leather jacket and like got yeah. up and like, this is my fighting clothes, right? Yeah. And even in that case, like too, usually on the Senate floor, I think more so during her pregnancy, she's also in her wheelchair versus when she was actually at the Women's March, she was wearing prosthetics and standing. And like, there's a visual cue there. Um, there's larger conversations about ability we could have too, but like, there's a visual cue there that like these two different spaces, women represent themselves in different ways. And I think we're also seeing those things intersect even more. Um, and even how we define womanhood and femininity is changing so much that what we're seeing the representation of women in politics today it's much more diverse and I like that. I think, you know, I don't like that you have to look this way or you have to be this one thing in order to be a woman leader in any form. I think that that's, that kind of pluralism is a good thing. We did a Women's History Month moment throughout the month of March and I, my first person I talked about was Jeanette Rankin, who mm -hmm. despite being the first elected member of Congress is sort of forgotten. Yeah. And that, you know, the, the Women's History Month um, iconic figures. And I think so much of it is because of what you're talking about. Like so much of the imagery she used and the way she presented herself was this, you know, what we would now consider, consider to be an antiquated argument. Mm -hmm. You need women there because women are kinder, softer, and they yeah. need to be taking care of public education and they need to be taking care of health. That's what we're good at. Whereas mm -hmm. like you would never like that, 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 that would not be a winning argument right now. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was really interesting to see like when women choose if you look back on that long view and the way that they chose to use femininity um, in, an, in a political argument has like sort of had historical reper repercussions for like how we still talk about them, which mm -hmm. I thought was so interesting. Um, when you look back at this woman who really should be like a big deal, she's the first yeah. elected women of Congress. Um, and then law was served two separate terms because she voted against World War, was the not the only vote for against World War One, but the only vote against World War Two going into World War Two sort of why she lost and it's it's this very interesting sort of to see how the 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 consequences of how they chose to use femininity sort of in the historical long view and i think over time the, those things have kind of it's been a little bit of a pendulum swing and i'm hoping that we're heading towards the middle ground because i think you know one of the things i think we're seeing now with the conversations around me too is the generational shifts of you know, um, I, we, I, we owe a lot to women in the second wave of feminism for putting up with what they did in order to get their feet into the doors. Um, but what a that, good way to put it. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, they put up with a lot. And, and I think, you know, some of the generational resentments that has come out, like the New York Times did this whole roundtable with multi-generational, multi-racial women kind of talking about their understanding of what was going on. And some of these women are like, this was just what it was to be in the workplace. Like, why are these younger women complaining? Which it wasn't right when it happened to them in the first place. It's not right when it happens now. Um, but I think, you know, that shift in the 70s was to say, like, well, this domestic rhetoric really worked in that first wave of feminism. But and I'm not one who subscribes to waves, but uh, <laughs> historically thinking of like, you know, it worked in previous generations. It's not going to work now. Let's, let's try to emulate masculinity. And that also has consequences because, you know, Nancy Pelosi has said like she could never cry like John Boehner did. Oh, yeah, no. And 
you know, John Boehner cried all the time. All the time. Still does. And and it's one of those things where, like, I have internalized that very much so, too. Of Like, I, you know, I have t- I told students a story last semester. I was teaching a class, and I just had one of those moments where you're like, I really need to, like, cry right now. <laughs> like, I just need to do that. And I had to go from that class to a meeting, and I was like, I still need to cry, and I cannot do this. And, like, I really just need, like, five minutes in my office to, like, watch there are certain things that I watch to like make myself cry when I need it. <laughs> it's usually Mark Green's death in ER, does it? It's oh, a yeah, very yeah, good yeah. trick. Of like, <laughs> yeah. That would do it. Yeah. Well, you should start a podcast because I cry all the time. Yeah, but I think but I think that's the thing. Like we're moving to a point now where like it's okay for women to who are not able to publicly cry to, to have that be a part of their sums, but it's also okay and I want it to be okay for people. Well there's to a cry whole publicly. podcast about Hillary crying. I mean, yeah. Like there's like that's a whole podcast on when she cried in the New Hampshire primary in two thousand seven. I cannot list the number of corporate training sessions that I've set in that should have been called how to lead like a man or how to act like a man at work. Oh, yeah. um, so that's definitely been a part of my experience. But now I think, especially with people like Tammy Duckworth, who cannot be boxed in in no, any yeah, way, no. Martha McSally is another person who comes to mind. You know, I feel like the new brand is authenticity. Yeah. And I wonder what that looks like to you in the long perspective mm-hmm. of art. Yeah. Because that seems to have its own risks to me, too. It does. I mean, I think, like, the, you know, the person I admire most for authenticity is probably Gloria Steinem um, because she's been remarkably consistent and flexible. And I was listening to an interview with her a couple weeks back ago. She was uh, interviewed on So Many White Guys um, by Phoebe Robinson, and they were talking about, like, she authentically, very clearly, was like, I like having younger friends because they teach me more about myself. Yeah, and she's, she's a woman right. in her 80s who, like, you know, isn't recalcitrant and is really open and has always been these things and been open to criticism, right? She was open to the criticism she got about her relationship with Lawrence Kennedy. She was open to the criticism she got in the 1980s with all this kind of, you know, hidden um, repressed memory stuff that kind of came up in that. But she's been willing to adapt and to move. And I think she's always been comfortable with herself and comfortable with the fact that, like, she is a beautiful woman and people have criticized her for that and she's fine with it. She, you know, she's not going to be like, yes, that's, I need to change that. Yeah. I think the fact that she's been able to kind of persevere and to say, yep, you're right. I maybe messed up this time and I'm going to fix it. And to kind of move in that way, I think is really great. And I think that's why she's been successful for many generations. Fun fact, I met Gloria Steinem, cried so hard she had to stand up and comfort me. That's how hard it's going. Are you <laughs> sensing a theme? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like she literally got up from behind the table and was like, it's okay. Which is, no, it's okay. Like, yeah, which is, I, I mean, that's you. how you know she's super authentic, yes. right? Like she is, I, yeah. Well, and let me, so to speak to some other sort of of her generation, one of the most interesting conversations I've ever had about female political representation when I worked on Hillary Clinton's first presidential campaign. I don't know even know how I ended up at this meeting. But maybe it was an event. There was um, the leader of NARAL, the leader of Planned Parenthood, the leader of NOW. But they were all there, and we were talking about an event with Hillary. And I said, and I, I don't think I was the youngest person in the room, but I was, that generation was outnumbering the, my generation. Mm-hmm. And I said, when I most identify with Hillary is when she talks about her hair. Like, yeah. when she just is open about her hair, and she's like, and that's when I see the person I know her to be, and I wish she would do that more. And they yeah. did a really great, they had like a, a beautician or a, like a fundraiser and they had this little card and they showed all her styles and I had a great quote from her. And I, and I think I brought it to the meeting. I was like, I think this is really great. And they would have none of it. They were like, absolutely not. She yeah. will look weak. We are not going to talk about her appearance. We're not going to make jokes about her clothes. That is ridiculous. Like they just... I was kind of taken aback. I'm like, whoa, but it was such a generational divide. Yeah, which I think is really interesting because, like, I, you know, when I think about, like, yeah, one of the things that I 
admire about her that is not talked about and I found very, very frustrating is like, I think there is authenticity to her. And I think when you, yeah, just like talking about her hair, like I look at her and I see somebody who like, I struggle with my hair all the time. Uh, I have curly hair, but I'm in a wedding this afternoon. And so I needed to have a way that I could be ready to go to get my hair done <laughs> and also appear professional. But also generally when I have to appear professional, I straighten and I put in a ponytail because otherwise... Oh, has thoughts on that. Have, we could talk. That's a whole podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but even like, you know, when I was on my job interviews, I had long conversations with friends about like, how do I put my hair in this way? Because I don't generally do my hair in a certain way. And I, you know, always constantly thinking about these things. And I think that for me is always a point of personal failure as a woman, which is ridiculous. Like this is how much I've internalized patriarchy and also you know the idea that straight hair is better than curly hair which whole podcast there's whole a whole podcast. yeah <laughs> that's a so whole other thing there's a racial aspect to that too that's even yeah, more complicated uh but i think you know when they were showing videos of her at wellesley and she looked like a person that like i kind of would felt like in college that's where i felt like oh here is somebody I you. I yeah see you. i see, see you, you. And, I, and i really wish like and i understand why she changed from hillary rodden to hillary clinton i i get that um I kind of wish that when she ran again, they might have pulled that out a little bit more. I think yeah. she would have been more relatable to more people. They pulled um, the, I feel like they pulled the Wellesley stuff out a little bit last time than that. Yeah. She's, you know, she is a all roads and female political representation lady Hillary because, I mean, you can track her from first lady. You can just watch the changing conversation and the what we wanted and what we didn't want and how we reacted. I mean, it's like you can just trace this whole narrative of how we feel about women in politics through her life. You know, it's such a, it's such an intense sort of um, manifestation and microcosm of all these things we feel and all these conflicts we feel about women um, just through her. But Beth doesn't like to talk about Hillary. No, it's fine. I mean, what I think is interesting, the most interesting thing I think about Hillary Clinton is the question of what level of competence we expect in women. Mm -hmm. That's why I like talking about Leslie Nope too. And I'm going to tie this to curly hair. Yes. Okay. This transition. I like it. So, <laughs> We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. 
you gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Um, as I kind of entered the corporate world, a very male-dominated profession in a very kind of traditional city in the Midwest, um, my, my career started as a lawyer in a kind of white shoe corporate firm in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I straightened my hair every day. Mm-hmm. I kind of watched the sea of blue suits and thought, okay, maybe I can do black suits. What do I do here? Um, And what I realized is that the women in the business community that I most admired played the game for a while and then got to a point where their competence was without dispute. Mm -hmm. And then they started wearing like whatever they damn well please. And they they dyed their hair different colors and their jewelry became, and it was like this, like a second and they turned into the person that you knew they were the whole time. But it was like, oh, I've earned it now. I've earned the right to be me now. And I would love to hear, and so, you know, when I got a few years in, I was like, I'll be wearing my hair curly now, thank you. (laughs) But but I would love to know kind of how that sits with you and, and is that changing? Like. Could somebody roll into Congress today? Um, Debbie Wasserman Schultz is a really interesting study in this yeah, too, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think so. One that totally resonates with me also because my argument always is if you want to find the best dressed faculty on any campus, look for the untenured young women. Mm. Um, because junior faculty women are constantly in a credibility position. And like I was talking to a colleague about, you know, like I, this is usually what I wear to teach. I like, I, you know, I always wear. A particular kind of professional professionalism. I'll wear jeans with a blazer or jeans with a blouse, but generally speaking, I have a certain degree of what I wear. Um, and I was speaking to a colleague, when, and he had started teaching around the same time, same age that I was when I started teaching. He might have actually been a little bit younger. And he's like, yeah, I used to play this game when I first started out where I would like hide in the back of the classroom and pretend to be a student on the first day of class. And I was like, I would never do that. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> that is a terrible idea. Like, I'm already coming in here at a disadvantage. And like, yeah. I'm very very clear with my students. I'm like, no, I'm Dr. Goodman. And like, there are contexts in which I'm Emily, but you have to be in senior STEM for that to be the, the context, because it's not that I don't want to be colleagues and friends with you. It's that I need you to know that in this room, I'm that authority figure. So on that faculty level, I feel very much that that's a thing. Well, and I think you see that the more, I think you, I don't think you've seen that shift in, I don't think you see that shift as clearly with individual politicians, like right. female politicians. But what I am witnessing and what I feel from my own perspective is it's not about how 
the individual female politician and her level of competency. It's about how much the field fills with women. And then therefore, yeah. then that's where the switch comes up. So yeah. right now we have the most women running for Congress, I think, in right. history. It's a huge number. And you have women. There's a woman up in, I think, Michigan who has a political ad where she is breastfeeding in the political ad. Yep. Like you have, we have, we just came from Arlington with, um, the new class of Virginia delegates, and there's a huge number of women. And you can feel they, you can kind of, it's not all, I'm not going to lie to you and say you don't feel any striving and you yeah. don't feel any like I need to prove myself. They feel that. Yeah. But because there's, you know, there's two women, there's at least three or four that have young kids. There's two women who have babies. One of this one, Jennifer Carol Foy, gave birth to twins during the campaign. Twins. Uh, yeah. Twins. So I'm like, oh my gosh. But you can see like when that when you feel like you're not alone. So when I ran for office in Paducah, um, the city commission, we have a lot of female representation in Paducah. It's a really awesome place. That's my personal opinion. <laughs> um, that's one of the reasons. And I like the summer. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's <laughs> awesome. And so we have we have a long history of female mayors, but like you can like the mayor and I ran together. We are both young women. And it's like because we could look at each other and decide. Like, these are the things we're going to wear. You're going to wear that. I'm going to wear that. And, like, there was protection that we yep. could, like, be there together. It gave us some permission to play with the boundaries and play with the rules. Um, whereas we have another city commissioner on the the commission who I adore who's a little bit older than us. And, I, and she's also, like, the chamber president. So she has a, a little sort of more fancy professional gig. But, like, you can see that she feel she would not do some of the things. I know she would not wear some of the things I wear or do yep. some of the things I do. But, like... We, because Brandy and I, Mayor Harless, has have given each other sort of permission, and they're, we're there together. It feels yeah. differently when you're not the the lone pioneer and the lone person in the room. You can play with your representation and your image, and you know, like my headshot for my campaign, I wasn't wearing a blazer or a collar at all, and like just all these little things. I put a lot of pictures of my kids, yep. and those things like. It, when you when you're not the only one, you have permission in a way to play with your representation. And I think also there's a little bit of a debt owed to the women who've refused to play the game forever. Mm-hmm. And I think yes. you know, like I, I think about you know um, Angela Davis, for example, as this figure who was able to challenge the notions of competency and the notions of representation in terms of her femininity and her blackness by showing up in court with an afro wearing you know wearing what we would consider non-white clothing, wearing, you know, embracing black culture visually and making the arguments come out of her mouth, you know, the ones that she was, and she won her case. And I think, like, that, the fact that... Bella Abzug. Exactly. She's, like, one that was like, "Ah, I'm going to do what I want. Yeah, and I think that those authentic... Like, those women who are not afraid and are more comfortable being their authentic selves also carve out space along with the coalition of women who are kind of... It's the institutionalist versus insurrectionist idea, right? Like, institutionalists know how to work the system to make the system change from within. Insurrectionists challenge the system in its whole, in its totality. And I think it takes both in order for anything Shout to Shout out to the Transylvania Political Science Department who taught me that on a very real level in my time here. <laughs> well, don't you feel like that's blurring? Because so when we were in Virginia, we spent a fair amount of time with Danica Rome, mm-hmm. who is a real blend of those two she things. She really is. Because she rolls into this cocktail hour event with buttons on. She's like right? a cocktail like, dress, but then she has like a long sweater over it with these... With like equal pay buttons and yeah, stuff. Yeah, ERA, so, yes. So yeah. she's totally like upended everything. She's the first transgender delegate. She doesn't want to talk to you about that. She wants to talk about Route 28. Mm-hmm. And she, better than anybody, I think, 
kind of played the game of the event in terms of she used her time talking not about herself, but about all of the great Mm -hmm. um, elected representatives from Arlington. She really gets the ins and outs of legislation. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's so smart. You just kind of, it's almost like you absorb her smartness while you're sitting next to her. So I think when you look at people like Danica Rome, people like Emma Gonzalez, you see a much lower threshold for game playing. It's not Mm -hmm. like, oh, I have all these... um, I have my age or my gender identity as a new thing working against me. So I'm going to really put on the suit and do the thing until everybody believes me. It's just like, no, I'm rolling in as I am, but I really get how to do this. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think there's more, the more we see women in politics, I think the more we recognize that you don't have to fit one mold, I think. And that's really, really helpful. I also feel like, you know, um, I really, really deeply respect the people who can do that. I also give credence to the people who, like myself can't <laughs> right like I I have a big anxiety about being dressed in the wrong thing for the wrong right like yeah. for the like being too dressed for an occasion being underdressed for an occasion you know not that that's just a me thing and so for me to feel comfortable and be able to say the things and get the credibility based off of what else I can bring to the opportunity then I can't do that but I also deeply respect the women who can and feel the same thing of being able to to be a part of it in that other way I think in both cases you have to be people where they are and I think we now have an opportunity for both to be met Right. I think like that the people who, who are willing to internalize the institutionalism, but also continue to project the, ex- the insurrectionism, I think that's really great. Well, and I think the idea that we can perfectly piece apart either yeah. is probably, you know, not a great idea. Emma Gonzalez is making choices, visual choices, not just, you know, I, we don't have to pick. Yes, maybe they are the most authentic expression of herself. And also maybe she's doing some very particular visual things to make a political point. Both can be true. Mm -hmm. You know, both can be, I know in my own life, but, you know, both things can be true. I can want to express my femininity and also know that I'm going to be making a political point when I do. Yep. Not a problem for me. I can do both. Like, so I think that there, you know, this idea that you are either doing one or the other, Mm -hmm. I think we're finally getting away from that and saying like, no, I can manipulate, I can take these these roles on and off. I can, I can play with them. I can manipulate them. Like that's something that is available to me and I'm going to take it. Mm -hmm. Like, so I think that that's something you're seeing more with not just activists, but, um, female politicians. And, um, especially, like I said, like this, I I feel like I've seen it in a more intense way with this election cycle than I Mm -hmm. have before, just because I think there, there's just more examples. Yeah. Just mathematically to look at (laughs) because there's so many women running to see the way people are manipulating their images and playing with things and, and, and pushing boundaries, but also um, sort of taking and owning stereotypes when they suit their purposes, which, yeah. go for it. I want to ask you about the week we've just had at the White House mm-hmm. um, and what kind of messages you see in the presentations of Angela Merkel and Brigitte Macron and Melania Trump. The like white this, hat. It's just been like a week, yeah. right? Of and, and I feel like those are stories, when we get to the international stage, it deeply affects me to see Angela Merkel do what she does. I don't feel like we have enough conversation about her. Yeah, I mean, my, what, the thing that I always find so striking about Angela Merkel is, you know, the, the grandmother paradox, mm-hmm. right? That she is now permitted to be kind of elder stateswoman by virtue of the fact that she is no longer within the sexual and reproductive framework that we give to women, and thus she's already had these seasoned experiences and so it's a, it's totally And that's fine. so much the only example we have like sort of the international stage until yeah. I can't remember the name of the woman in New Zealand who's pregnant. I can't wait for that. I'm so excited. Yeah. Well, and I, so one of my college classmates actually was the first woman in Canadian politics. She's a cabinet secretary to give birth that's in office. 
I've been threatening to create a Pinterest board of like, the, there's a lady in Italy who always wraps her baby up and comes to like the legislative and then Tammy Duckworth, Kathy Tran, the woman and the yeah. prime minister. Like I am all about pregnant and or breastfeeding and or baby wearing legislators and executives. Especially as the personal style and kind of personality and agenda of those women diversifies. Yeah. Too, right. Totally. Because it does, it's not so mommy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it, it does give permission to women for whom having children is and I is something they want to do or something they have done as like, this is okay for you to do this and have this other thing. I also feel like, you know, I know my sister's child free and very much so that's her choice um, as much pushback as she gets for that too. And I think like there are also legislators that we, you know, look at who don't have children for various reasons that that's also part of their identities and they're no less women for not having children. Um, and so I think, you know, I think, that's when we think about the grandmother paradox too, right? That's so much of what we think about it. Womanhood is tied to reproduction. And I think that that is hopefully changing, but it's going to take a long time, which is really when you think about the long history of women in politics, right? Like think of all of your major 19th century, 20, early 20th century reformers, right? Jane Adams and mm-hmm. et cetera, and Susan B. Anthony and uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, single women, single. Not Elizabeth Cady Stanton. She had like 10 kids. And yes. She... But okay. Yeah. Not Elizabeth Cady Stanton. But uh, Susan B. Anthony for sure. That's my favorite thing about their friendship is that yeah. their lives were so, so different. Like their personal lives. Yeah. But Jane, Jane Adams is a quote unquote single woman, which the quote unquote being that she was very much so partnered with another woman, but Victorian society allowed that to be an identity, right? The idea of a Boston marriage was actually permitted within that culture because in that way, women were seen as asexual, mm. right? That women without like, there's no way that two women living together are having sex because women don't have sex if there are no men around. Like, that's not a thing. Uh, but so many of those women who kind of led the first wave into kind of women's forays into politics did so actually by having a, a partner, sexual elements of that aside, but having a partner who did the domestic duties and they took on the masculine role and they did so childless, you know, in a, in a child-free setting. Um, or in some cases having weird familial relations where they did have children, but they were sent off in different places. Like I think about saying Margaret Sanger and her sister and things like that. But you know, that again, this is maybe this is the, we've gone through one phase here and phase here. And now we're getting to a place where maybe all of these things can be true at the same time. Well, what I love so much about the reason I think I identify so much with that is because I think it opens up space when you see female political leaders, like mothering, especially little kids, because we have in this, society we've decided there is one way to mother Mm -hmm. like there's one right way to mother and that's about being ever present like you know being the the nurturing caring giving everything to your kids and I feel like these women in this in this presenting themselves is like no there is another way like to be a mama bear I could be a mama bear by out being out the ceiling I'm about to cry yeah (laughs) be a mama bear out there by protecting their interests in the world they're going to live in like there is a different way to do this and a different present presentation of motherhood and I think that's such that's so powerful not just for women in politics or child-free women everywhere just because you know releasing the death grip on there's one way to mother and it's the most important thing you can do yeah is helpful for all women oh yeah everywhere yeah and it also you know it takes the burden off of mothers as parents it's the mm-hmm. only parent right that you're you know I think I think about like what Anne-Marie Slaughter has been saying for a couple of years and yeah. we can talk about the class and racial politics of that at another point but like you know, her whole thing is it's not just on women. We need to think about men as fathers and give credence to that and, like, you know, recognize that we, we ding women for having an external life that is family. We don't ding anybody who, you know, she brought up the, like, idea of running a marathon, right? Training for a marathon takes a lot of time. So much time. Done it. Yeah, it, it takes a lot of time, and yet we think that that's a good thing because it's selfless and it's disciplined and all these things. And 
having children itself is an extremely disciplined and yeah. it is a thing that, you know, we don't talk, we only talk about primarily still with women and we need to talk more about with men. Well, and there's been so much development with men, po- male politicians and they're exerting their sort of fatherhood roles and mm-hmm. the change that there's a whole podcast on the change imagery of that as well. But there's also, that's also the primary excuse, right? Yeah. Men step away from politics to go spend time with their, their families. families. As women. But I actually believe Paul Ryan. We've had <laughs> I believe him. This is both things to be true. It can be that and something else. I think it is. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. 
hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. know, Emily, if you see a way for us to get through the awkwardness of trying to learn how to talk about these things, because we just did that right with motherhood. It's great to be a mom. It's also okay to do it different ways. It's also okay not to do it. Everything's okay. We even get this on our Instagram feed. Like, you know, people will comment on our photos when we're out somewhere and they'll be like kind of apologizing. Like this was really a great discussion and I'm sorry to ask, but I just want to know what your lipstick shade is. And it's, it's just (laughs) so awkward. And I appreciate that people are trying to be thoughtful about everything. Mm -hmm. It also feels to me like we're stuck in sort of this lanky teenager period of conversation. I think we're all, I think as a culture, we are generally afraid to fail and to make mistakes. And I think that's wrong. And I think that's wrong politically because people can, you know, people can vote on something and learn something new and change their minds. And that should be a good thing. And that's been an issue in our politics for a long time, right? That the idea of the flip-flopper being something or, um, you know, just like all of these kind of longer conversations we've had where we expect people to be perfect and infallible. And if you're not perfect and infallible, then, you know, you are not deserving of our attention or you're not as, as noble. And the converse has also become true where, you know, it's the what about is kind of idea of like, mm-hmm. well, nobody's perfect. So here we'll just take the worst of us and put it out there and see if we're being authentic and see I'm not perfect. And so I don't care. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think there needs to be, we need to move into this. Like it's okay to fail because that's where you learn and that's where you grow and it's going to be uncomfortable. And I think that's where we feel like we're in this like lanky teenage period is like, yeah, you're asking a question that you might be perceived in a certain way. And I think that's okay. I think I want us to have room for that. Well, and that's what we talk about on the podcast. Like we're just out of practice. We're Mm -hmm. out of practice. We, you know, I tell people all the time, like we screw up on race. We screw up on race a lot Mm -hmm. because we're two white ladies. And sometimes we have to talk about race and that is uncomfortable and it's scary and it's still worth it. Like it's still important to get it wrong. And somebody email us and be like, Hey, you got that wrong. We're like, Oh, first of all, like we're both like, you know, valedictorian good girls. So when we get something wrong, we're like, Oh my God. Oh my God. But then we, Wake up the next day, and the sun still rises, yep. and everyone still loves us, except for maybe some people on Twitter, and we go on with our lives, yep. and it's we try again, and we wake up, and we say, okay, well, you know, the most important part is not to get it all right, yeah. and to not win every conversation. Yeah. The most important part is to continue the dialogue, and to move forward, and to learn, and be curious about each other, because we're in this together, yeah. and so that's the, you know, but that's hard, because the, if you, if you haven't you know, really screwed something up and said something wrong and felt like, oh my gosh, I did something really insensitive instead of just being defensive and being like, I didn't do it and just own it. In that moment, it is very scary. Yeah. And then you wake up the next day and the sun still rises and you're like, okay, that was scary, but I lived through it. Yeah. One of the reasons I love being a professor is my students say things that are super, super profound. And we were having a conversation at the beginning of last semester with uh, one of my classes about like, how do we set up our class for this to be okay, to have failures, to have moments of not of saying the wrong thing, particularly around sensitive topics like race and class and ability. Uh, And one of my students, she just put it so brilliantly. She said, the point of an argument isn't to win, it's to learn. And that idea is like, yeah, you're you're not here to win. You're not here to have this you know, always be perfect. You're here to make a mistake and find out why your mistake was wrong. And I, I mean, I love it when my students tell me like, I had a student, um, I was teaching American art and I was talking about depictions of slaves. And he pulled me aside after class and he was like, actually this other professor I have uses the phrase enslaved people because it affirms the humanity of people who are enslaved. And I was like, oh, 
Right. Yes. I'd never thought about that because one, literature uses the word slaves all the time. And two, like, yeah, that just had I never been. I went to the Whitney Plantation in Louisiana and they, and I noticed it. It took me about 30 minutes to be like, oh my God, they always say enslaved woman, enslaved child, enslaved man, enslaved people. And like, I'm like, and she says, that's not the entirety of their personhood. Right. The fact that they were enslaved was not the entire, that they, they were a slave. No, they were much more than that. Yeah. Um, even though it's history, we look at them as one thing. And I was like, oh my gosh, I never thought about that. Yeah. And I don't think of that as language policing. I think that yeah. I was like, that's, because it's not language policing. It's giving somebody back their humanity. Like it's, the conversation for me stops when you deny somebody's existence. Right. And that's where like, I don't allow certain things. You're going to really love our book coming out in 2019. <laughs> all about graceful political dialogue. We talk about all that. Yeah. But so I think, you know, leaving room for that is, is important. And I think, you know, I expect the correction. I like the correction mm-hmm. because that makes me better because there are things I can go back in my history and I have definitely said things that I would not say again now. And I expect that also for the people who stand in front of me and lead. Right. I don't want them to be perfect because if they're perfect, then they don't, they're not open to the idea of changing. And I have no room to be. That's tweetable. Yeah. So I I think like, it's just, it's one of those things where like, I don't, I think perfectionism is the problem. And I think we'll get through the awkward teenage years when we can forget about being, you know, just as you get through high school, right. By the end of high school, hopefully, maybe by the end of college, maybe by the end of your 20s, you get through (laughs) this like thing of like, who have I become? Who am I? And you finally become comfortable. Um, but you get through that through all of the failures. Like I can think back on all of the phases and there were many phases and many bad hair colors and I'm still not entirely <laughs> sure that the right hair color has found me yet, but, uh, there are many things that are, that are part of my, my past that have made me the person that I am and I'm glad for them. This conversation makes me really want to talk to you about Veep. Um, yeah. So, I mean, what I, what I find really interesting about Veep, I think is some of this conversation about women in masculine roles, right? I think one of the things I like about Selena Meyer as a caricature, because she's not a character, she's a caricature, um, is that she exudes things that we think of as completely masculine. And some of that's just her language. So true. Uh, in my personal life, I swear like a sailor and my husband uh, is a nice Southern boy uh, who likes to point out that that's very unladylike. And the more he does that, the more I swear. Um, <laughs> because it's just, you know... Uh, I'm very contrarian by nature. Um, but I think, you know, there's something about that that is visually jarring to people to see somebody mm-hmm. who's put together and presented in such a way. and then Very say, feminine. Like her yeah, vision, oh, yeah. her imagery on that show is very feminine. I love that she doesn't do jackets. Yeah, I yeah. love that. Yeah. 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 And I think, like, there are other things about it. Like the episode where she had a, had a zit. <laughs> and it was, like, this whole thing about, like, how do they bring in medical professionals to get rid of this zit? And, like, you'd never see a man do that. And that, I think, was also really nice of, like, me as a woman watching that being, like, oh, my God, I have been there. Like, breakout that you get the week before your wedding, for example, because everybody through the stress has that happen. Or, like, a big job interview and all of a sudden you've got this, like, thing. And I don't have a team of professionals to yeah. treat it medically. And it also, thankfully, also not get infected from being treated medically and then getting all this other makeup in it. But like that felt very human to me, but it also, you know, I watched this, I watched me with my husband and he's like, Oh yeah, that's a thing that like I never have to deal with. And it's funny in this situation, but I bet you actually have to deal with that on a daily basis. Well, what I love about her is I think that, you know, we don't talk about it. We need women legislators to take care of public education anymore, mm-hmm. but we do still talk about female politicians as bringing a particular characteristic to the, to the stage, right. That, um, you know, they're more empathetic and they're more um, willing to build consensus mm-hmm. and to find compromise. And the fact that she is just so not that stereotype, yep. like she is clumsy, she is ego driven, she is, you know, sort of myopic and so many things. Like I just, I love the way they portray her because mm-hmm. I think you're right. I mean, I think it's the, it's the stereotype of 
a male politician yeah. played by a woman. And it's just, it's very, very um, smart and I think pushes everybody to be like, hmm, let me think about this. Uh, how do I, what do I think about male politicians? And what happens when a female politician comes to the stage and she's competent but maybe not nice or nice mm-hmm. and maybe not competent or maybe a little bit of both, which is where we really get in trouble. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. So this is where we're going to ask for y'all's help one more time. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Nicely done. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Support for Pantsuit Politics comes from our listeners. We especially appreciate our executive producers, George Niedermeyer, Tracy Pidoff, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. Our theme music was written and performed by Dante Lima. To support Pantsuit Politics, please visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. Subscribe and leave a rating and review in the Apple Podcast Player and follow us on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic and Facebook and Instagram at Pantsuit Politics.